and uh, it's because many places they don't, you know, treat portions of the Bible, I think, as the Bible. And if it were John, which will be in next, or Matthew, or Psalms, hey, that's great, but trekking through numbers, you know, for some people can be tough. Well, that's what we're going to do for the next hour. We have a Bible study in the book of Numbers. If you don't think you can hang with that, and that you are looking for something a bit more entertaining and exciting, um, as we pray, you can move to the very back of the auditorium, and if you were to get up and leave, no, you would go unnoticed. And uh, now's the time to do that if you don't think you can manage staying seated for the service. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the celebration that we have together as believers. It's so wonderful to celebrate that we have been set free. That the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin cleanses us daily from the power of sin and one day we will be away from the presence of sin itself. And we anticipate also in our worship the time that we're going to spend with you in all of eternity where we'll never get tired, where we'll never have to turn off our worship, where we can be in your presence directly. We do invite you, Lord, to come and teach us and give us hearts that yearn to know what you say in your word. We don't want to be like the Pharisees of whom Jesus said, you are ignorant not knowing the scriptures. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, our minds, give us a real hunger and a thirst to know it and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, I was an altar boy. Now, can you picture that? My mom says I was a fairly cute altar boy, too. But I've seen the pictures. I look at him and I go, you know, I was a nerd, basically. That's what I was. But I went through all of the rituals. Went through the communion, went through the confirmation. I did all the stuff because that's how I was raised. It was very important to my parents. Both of my brothers went to the seminary, almost became priests. My aunt has been and still is a mother superior in a convent back east. So I grew up steeped in rituals. Rituals were the way that we got in touch with God. And if you come from the same background as I did, you can really relate to that. For some reason, you feel like, I've done my duty. We used to call it our weekly obligation, our Sunday obligation. In fact, they came up with Saturday night mass and we thought, now that's cool because you can take care of your Sunday obligation Saturday night. And if you get there in time for the homily and you leave right after the communion, you've, that's the core. Anything else is cheating and God doesn't like that. But if you get there for the homily, which is a little bit late, and you leave right after communion, you've taken care of your duty, your sacred ceremony. The problem with that is that when you keep the ceremonies, you feel very good about yourself. And if you fail to keep a ceremony, you feel very bad about yourself. That's the great thing about the New Testament. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's only one religion God ever gave to humanity, and that was Judaism. Christianity really is not a religion. Even though it's classified as one of the major religions of the world, it is not a religion. The only religious system God ever gave to man was Judaism. And there's a series of rituals, regulations, and rules whereby, if kept, 
a man can be in right standing with God. God said, keep all of these rules, all of these regulations. Now, when God said that, he knew they couldn't do it. In fact, the people said, everything you tell us, Moses, we will do it. We'll keep the law of God. You just find out what God wants and we'll keep it. And God, when he heard that, said, Oh, that my people had a heart within them to be able to keep it. They couldn't. So because of sin and failure, God instituted a series of sacrifices, offerings for their sin. Vicarious atonement. That is, an animal would be substituted. One life given for another life. And the blood that is shed from that animal would cover your sin. And so rituals were instituted. We don't like rituals, we say at churches like this, Calvary Chapel. We're not into rituals. Actually, I think if you'd examine any mode of worship, you'd find a ritual. It's just a way of doing things. Who said that you have to start with a half an hour of singing before you have a time in the Word? Why not reverse it? Why not have Bible study and then worship in response to what you've read? Well, we've just done it that way. Ritual. And every time we... we uh, alter things a little bit, change a little few things here and there. It's interesting to watch people's responses. Where's our dove? The Holy Spirit left. And our little icon is gone. We are funny. We are creatures of habit. We're used to it. We all have rituals. But God established many of these ceremonies that, and actually that's sort of the turn we're taking in the book of Numbers. We start going through lots of sacrifices, offerings, and feast days. And we're just going to touch on a couple of these, all of them, in these two chapters tonight. But what they served as was a visible proclamation of a truth rather than a verbal proclamation, because you take something and you watch this animal as you lay your hands on it and you kill it and you watch the blood drain from it and you see it sprinkled. Very graphic. It tells you a lot about your sin. It tells you a lot about God requires in terms of the ending of a life because of sin. It's very visual. It's like the ancient equivalent to television. You see it and it makes an impact as you see it. And so we go through now in chapter 28... Uh, visually, these rituals. And uh, what these chapters serve as is sort of like notations for the priesthood. You see, they had to prepare for a whole year's worth of sacrifices. And if you were to tally up all of the animals that were slain in one year, you'd have 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, one ton of flour or grain, and probably another ton or two of oil. So they had to have all of this prepared for the nation because of the sacrifices that were required. But more important, what these sacrifices, I think, teach us is that God requires worship when we approach Him. And He requires worship to be done a certain way. God didn't say, Moses, get together with Aaron and you guys just, you know, kind of relate to me, you know, man, like what, however you want to, whatever's cool, whatever you feel like, however you picture me as, and whatever you decide to do is really cool with me, Moses. No, he said, sin 
causes your relationship with me to be broken. If you're going to approach me, this is how you will approach me. This is the only way that I will accept. And Jesus, on behalf of the Jews, in John chapter 4, speaking to the Samaritan woman, who basically said, you know, what difference does it make? You Jews worship in Jerusalem, and we worship here on this mountain. Jesus said, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, there are those who would say, it really doesn't matter how you worship, it doesn't matter whom you worship, it doesn't matter what religious system, all roads lead to God. There is one big highway to God. Well, it's true, all roads do lead to God, but you don't want to meet God following other roads. Jesus in John 14 had a conversation with his disciples. They were absolutely devastated because he talked about the fact that he was dying. And they didn't understand that he would rise again. They just heard the D word, death. So he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Let it, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many abiding places. Were it not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go... I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that wherever I am, there you may be with me also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. Probably all of them didn't have a clue as to what exactly he was saying. There was only one of them, however, that was very honest. Thomas. I like Thomas. At least he had the guts to voice his complaints. He goes, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? The other disciples were probably going, quiet, this is Jesus, you can't say that to, this is God. But he didn't, he didn't understand, so he said, I don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way, how can we know how to get there? Then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. If you were to take that into a Greek translation, it would be much more distinct it would say, I, in contradistinction to all others, am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one will come to the Father except through me. That narrows it down pretty far. Well, in the Old Testament, there was Judaism. God gave his plan to this Jewish nation. And there's a series of sacrifices that they were to go through. Well, let's pick it up in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And he gives their appointed times. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. Ben ha arbaim is the Hebrew, between the evenings. In other words, you'll have one in the morning, and you'll have one when the sun is set and it's dark. A morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And this was a practice that continued all the way into the New Testament. The morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. 
So from verse 1 all the way to verse 8, it's the daily sacrifice. They had to offer something every single day in Israel. There was always a sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. No matter what day you went there, you would see some kind of sacrifice, some kind of an offering. And uh, you had to have, as we read here, two male lambs from the first year. As you read on, you have to have two quarts of grain, about a quart of oil. And then toward the end, you have to have a quart for a libation of drink, a drink offering, which is a strong drink like wine or as one translation says, beer. Now, I know it's hard for you to picture them taking a can of beer and pouring it out, but it was some fermented drink that was part of the drink offering every day, morning and evening, uh, for the nation of Israel. The idea was that every day of my life belongs to God. There's not one day that should go by without my offering myself to God. I belong to God. God lives in me. And so there's that daily sacrifice. Also a reminder of the daily sins that I commit that need to be cleansed by God. So that constant reminder that cleansing must take place for the nation. Now, I'd like you to turn to something for just a moment. Let, let's, before we get into verse 9, turn over to Hebrews 9. Because it's written for Hebrews, as the name implies, those people who kept all of the sacrifices we're reading about and thought that these daily sacrifices were the things that would cleanse them. As long as these sacrifices are going on in the temple, I'm okay. When Jesus died on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in effect, there were no more sacrifices. He ended them all. He fulfilled all of the law. Yet, when I grew up as an altar boy, there were times where I was required to be altar boy of the week. Now, that wasn't an honor or a special parking place that you get in front of the church. It was something that you had to do, get up about 6 in the morning and you'd have Mass at 7, at least at St. Joan of Arc, where I went. And so we had to say it every single day because the idea, as I was taught, is there must be a continual sacrifice of the Mass. And as I had it explained to me, the idea is that somewhere around the world there is this reenactment of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ 24 hours a day, and there needs to be the continual sacrifice of the Mass for the efficacy of the washing away of our sins. Because as the Catholics believe, they believe in uh, transubstantiation, that the elements literally become the body and blood of Christ, that as you partake of them, it's the whole reenactment, it's that continual sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Well, in Hebrews 9, it sort of addresses this by way of Judaism. Therefore, it was necessary, verse 23 that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So Jesus appeared to put away sin. The Old Testament sacrifices reminded them of sin and simply covered over their sin. You say, you mean it didn't take it away? No, it didn't take it away. So how do you know? (laughs) Easy, because they had to keep doing it. They had to keep offering a sacrifice. It was unending every day, every month, every year. Until Jesus came and he died once, and now sin is taken away. Let's say there's a spot on the carpet tonight, and let's say you put it there. Let's say you ignored the sign and you brought your cappuccino in. You're hiding it. And as we read one verse, go down to another verse, our heads bow, you take a drink. You think, oh man, I'm getting away with it. But let's say you slip and you spill that cappuccino all over the rug. What are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd cover it up. I'd set a piece of paper and my Bible on it. It's still there. You can't see it. You've covered it up, but you have not eradicated it. You haven't eliminated it. It's still there. Now, if you can lift the spot via a chemical or a washing, that's one thing, but to cover over it is another. The Old Testament sacrifices kafar in Hebrew, covered them over, but never eradicated sin. And so they all anticipate Christ's coming. Well, there were these daily sacrifices. Then in verse 9, there were also Sabbath offerings. And on Shabbat, Sabbath, two lambs in their first year without blemish, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath beside the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. The Sabbath was the fourth commandment that God gave. Do you remember? You shall keep holy the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was given as a maintenance commandment for the children of Israel. It was done because God loved them. God wanted them to have a break. There are workaholics. There are people who don't know when to rest. They just keep going like the ever-ready bunny, but eventually the battery will just run out or they'll crash into the wall. God, because he loved man, knew that man needed a break, needed a rest. Even Jesus' disciples... At one point, Jesus saw that they were reaching there, and he said, come aside by yourself and rest. And so God made the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, the ones that didn't rest on the Sabbath, of course, were the priests. They had to offer the sacrifices in the temple. The word Sabbath, by the way, Shabbat, basically means to put an end to something. It's a beautiful ceremony. If you have never celebrated Sabbath, And you don't have to celebrate it, by the way. I want to underscore that. It was given as a perpetual covenant to the children of Israel. Christians in the New Testament were never told to keep the Sabbath. When the church at Jerusalem wrote to the church at Antioch what they needed to do, he said, well, don't sacrifice to idols, don't drink blood, and, you know, here's a few injunctions that you have to keep. But the rest, God bless you guys farewell. Walk before God. But we are not under the law, and the Sabbath law is the only commandment of the Ten Commandments that is purely ceremonial and non-moral. The other commandments have a moral base 
and they are not necessarily ceremonial. The Sabbath is the only ceremonial, non-moral commandment given. And all of the other commandments in the New Testament are written about and they are um, uh, given to us uh, to keep. We're to honor God, we're not to murder, and we're not to steal. Those are things that are universal. But the Sabbath was the peculiar covenant law given to the children of Israel. Now, the question is asked, well, then who changed the Sabbath? Or people will say, well, Sunday, that's the Christian Sabbath. No, it's not. Saturday is the Sabbath. Christ is the Christian Sabbath. We've rested in Him. He's done all of the work. We don't strive before God. He's fulfilled the Sabbath. So there is no Sabbath law that you have to keep as a believer. You say, well, why did they start meeting on Sunday? Simple. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And we read about it in Acts. We read about it in Corinthians where Paul said, when you gather together on the first day of the week, became a practice. Jesus rose from the dead. However, you would do well if you would keep the six-in-one pattern. Now, in America, we have a five-in-two pattern, but nobody really keeps it. You work five days, and you're off two days. Some of you have a great job where you work four days, and you're off three days, uh, or different schedules. Uh, that's awesome. But usually, what we do with those two extra days, say, okay, it's time for me to work on that, work on this, work on this. Work. And then it's like our weekend, we're just, you know, wow, I'm just so tired, so beat up, I need a rest. So you would do good, actually, if you would take one day and do nothing. Sleep in. Stay in bed. Be lazy. Now, some of you would feel guilty doing that. You shouldn't. God told you to do it. It's a great pattern. You'd live longer. Well, I don't want to live longer. Well, all right. <laughs> don't do it. Beginning in verse 11, there's monthly offerings as well as daily offerings and weekly offerings. Sabbath offerings. At the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Now, the Jews kept the lunar calendar, that is, the movement of the moon rather than the calendar we keep, the movement of the sun. So they based it on 360 days a year rather than six, 365 and a third days of the year. The first day of the month was Rosh Kodesh, or the head of the month. And it became really legalistic. The Sanhedrin in Jerusalem were the ones that declared it's the first day of the month. And they had to have two witnesses who would see the crescent moon, and they would come in, and they would um, match the two witnesses' words their testimony of what they've seen in the sky with their own secret calculations. And if they matched up, they would declare, you know, it's the first day of the month. And I don't know why they made it. Why don't you just go look out and say, oh, crescent moon, first day of the month. But it was very, very legalistic. Well, in the first day of the month, they had to have a sacrifice. You say, why is that? Why every day? Why every Saturday, Shabbat or Friday? And why every month? Well, the pagans worshipped these astral deities, gods of the sun, the moon, and the stars, at the beginning of every month. And so the children of Israel, at the beginning of every month, made a statement by their worship. We worship no God but the only God, and we worship Him every day, we worship Him every Sabbath, and we worship Him at the beginning of every month. And there's no other God, He has no competition, was, I think, the general idea behind it. 
So the beginning of each month, they would uh, have a more elaborate sacrifice. Six quarts of flour were given, if you were to add them all up. And then down in verse 16, we uh, begin with the feast. And you notice it says, offerings of Passover. And then down in verse 26, offering of the Feast of Weeks. And the next chapter continues it. Now, a word about the feasts. I love feasts. When you hear the term feast, you think of, if you're like me, you think of like a Thanksgiving feast, a big meal. The feasts of Israel did include meals, but they were times of great joy, celebration. God wanted his people to gather together and have a great time of celebration. As we were celebrating tonight in worship, I thought, I'm sure God is pleased with our joy. Our joy is in him. We're singing about him. Rather than getting a temporary high or a fix from some mediocre piece of entertainment, our joy is in him. And we celebrate it. And the feasts were to be times of great joy, great celebration in Israel. I've been to Israel during the feast where there's dancing and singing and there's great uh, food as well. Excellent, excellent time. I've been to some weddings. Now, yesterday we had a wedding. Our, one of our gals on staff got married. I tell you, it was a very unusual wedding. The bridesmaids danced down the aisle as they came toward the stage. And I'm, you know, I wasn't used to it. But I thought, you know what? It's a time to be joyous. And they were joyous. It was, it, they were happy. They were ecstatic. Too many times you, I, I've seen Christians that just, you know, it's like, what happened to you? I've got joy in Jesus, man. Well, don't spread it my way. I've been to some weddings, you'd swear it's a funeral. I mean, they won't crack a smile. They're just stiff and no joy. The festivals were meant to be times of great joy. Passover is first on the list, or Pesach, as the Jews say, on the 14th day of the first month. The first month would be the month of Nisan, not the truck. That's the Jewish month they started. The first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the 15th day of this month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover really took two feasts and brought them together, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And it was like a seven-day festival. It would begin by the search for the chometz, the leaven in the house. You would take a couple candles or one candle, and you would search every room of the house for leaven because you were to take every piece of leaven out of the house. You would go through every cupboard. You would shake every piece of garment. If a mouse scurried across your floor, according to the Jewish writings, and you suspected that it had a breadcrumb, which meant it had leaven in it, uh, fear would grip your heart because a curse, they thought, might be brought upon your house. None of this is biblical. It's purely superstitious. But they went nuts when it came to getting leaven out of the house. It was a feast of unleavened bread. The bread that is used in Israel is the matzah cracker. And if you celebrated Passover the other night, you're familiar with the square, flat bread. It's got holes in it. And uh, it's very specific in how it is to be made. The holes were used in the baking to let the air pass through quickly because you didn't want the bread to ferment. And according to Jewish law, you had a maximum of 18 minutes from the beginning of kneading of the dough to the 
final product being baked. Otherwise, it's not kosher. You couldn't eat it. So you punch holes in it, let the air escape to hinder any fermentation, and you've got unleavened bread. You'd eat that for seven days. You think, oh, what a drag. Actually, it's great. When I was in Israel during Passover, we ate it for a month. And I started liking it so much, I didn't want leavened bread after a while. I just wanted it all the time. And when I moved back to the States, and I went to the nearest kosher market to buy as much matzah as I could, because I, I loved it. Good for you. Okay, on the first day, verse 18, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be one, a, a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, two-tenths for a ram. And uh, the rest of the recipe is given down below. Now, it's interesting that in Israel today, you've got basically a nation that is sort of a Jewish nation, but it's largely secular. That is, they're Jewish by birth and nationality, but they don't always, most of them at least, practice any form of ritual Judaism. Some of them do, but not all of them do, except Passover is the one feast where you have a 99% participation in the country. They're devoted to Passover. And most of them, about 82%, will eat only kosher food during that time. Back during the time of the New Testament and shortly thereafter, Passover was regarded as the festival of festivals. Josephus and the historian Tacitus tell us that in 65 AD, there were over 3 million people in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem only housed about three to 400,000 people normally, but during Passover, it would swell to about 3 million people. And they would come from everywhere to celebrate Passover. In fact, Josephus counts that in that year, there were 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered in the temple of Jerusalem. That's a lot of lamb's blood. Now, during the Passover, um, they were to offer the lamb, and then also in verse 22, a goat for the sin offering. And uh, then they'd have the burnt offering in verse 23 of the morning, which is for the regular burnt offering. Now, the great thing about Passover is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Passover. We've gone through that, I think, enough times. He's called the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. All right, verse, 30, uh, verse 26, which... Uh, uh, from there on to the end ends the chapter is the offering of the Feast of Weeks. Also on the day of the first fruits, you shall bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks. You shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering of sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. Fifty days after the wheat harvest which was right at the end of the festival of uh, uh, unleavened bread, you would have this festival, the Feast of Weeks, which became known as Pentecost later on. And it was Pentecost during the beginning of the summer months that everybody was gathered in Jerusalem and they heard the early church speaking in tongues and the church was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. And all of these feasts find a fulfillment in the New Testament. You have Passover, if it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Uh, you have the Pentecost, which finds its fulfillment uh, with the birth of the church, the ingathering of the first fruits on Pentecost. 3,000 souls were added to the faith. 
That's the first fruits of salvation that would go to all of the world. And so Pentecost finds its fulfillment as well. Now in chapter 29, oh, by the way, three feasts are notable feasts because they are pilgrim feasts. Let's say you lived somewhere in Judea. You didn't live by Jerusalem. It's a three-day walk to Jerusalem. Well, if you lived within a certain perimeter of Jerusalem, three times a year you'd have to go there. You make a pilgrimage. Passover was one, Pentecost was the other, and the Feast of Tabernacles was the other. So you had hordes of people in Jerusalem during that time. It was during Passover that Jesus presents himself coming down the Mount of Olives on that donkey and presents himself in the temple. It was on Pentecost when you have multitudes from all around the world that are gathered where God through the Holy Spirit does an amazing work. Then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which Jesus used as well to get a very important point across. We'll get to that in a few verses. Chapter 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month. Now let's stop right there. The seventh month is the busiest month in the Jewish calendar. It's the month of Tishri. Because there are a few festivals all linked together in one month. Very, very busy, filled with worship, and filled with lots of sacrifices. On the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. It is the day of blowing of the trumpets. Later on, the first day of the seventh month became known as Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year. The beginning of the civil year. Now, some of you are saying, I'm, I'm a little puzzled, Skip. I remember several months ago you said the beginning month of the year is the month of Tishri, where there is the Passover. That's the beginning of the religious year. But they have a religious year as well as a civil year. And the beginning of their civil year is Rosh Hashanah. It begins in the seventh month, the month of Tishri. And so there was the blowing of the trumpets. And there, there were offerings that were given as well. And then in verse 7, on the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, a big meeting. You shall afflict your souls, and you shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma. One young bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. This is Yom Kippur. And uh, the, the Jewish rabbis used to say in the seventh month, at the blowing of the trumpets, God would judge his people, but not render his judgment till Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day you are to afflict your souls. The word afflict your souls in Hebrew means to be bowed down or oppressed. The idea is that you come humbly and you fast. You don't eat that day in Judaism. It's a time to afflict your souls. You are faced with the gravity of sin as the high priest on that day would walk into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. So you afflict your souls. Now today, to talk about things like afflicting your souls or repentance or humility it kind of brings yawns to people. Yeah, that's really exciting, repentance. And so... The modern church has sort of gotten away from the idea of repentance and holiness. And, and now there's a new trend called holy laughter. Oh, it's a new move of the Spirit. You just sit around and, and you cackle. Or you bark like a dog. 
in some churches. You get on the ground, you just roll around, you start laughing, oh yeah, that's all right, woo, woo. you start barking, and there's churches where you have animal noises. And if you say anything about it, oh, you're judging. We need more joy in the church. Right, we do. We need the right, true joy. Whatever happened to holy mourning over one's sin? That brings greater joy than anything. If you want joy in your life, you recognize the, the whole idea of Judaism is that, you know, animals have to be sacrificed. We're sinners before God. And if you want joy in the festivals, they were great times of joy. You deal with sin first. After you deal with sin, your heart is filled with joy that your sin has been taken away. But would to God that the church in America would humble itself and repent of sin and mourn over carnality and then be filled with godly joy, a joy in the Spirit that's real, that the world would look at and marvel. These guys are serious. They mean business. They have a joy that has depth to it. On this day, they would afflict their souls. The offerings were to be without blemish. The grain offerings mixed. The recipe is given. We won't go through that all. Beginning in verse 12, notice this is the bulk of the chapter, verses 12 to verse 40. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. On the 15th day of the seventh month, Tishri is still the month in view. You shall have a holy convocation. These guys get together a lot, I'm telling you, in this month. You shall do no customary work. You shall keep a feast to the Lord for seven days. Josephus, now by the way, Josephus, if you don't know who he is, he was a Jewish historian who gave a tremendous amount of history of the Jewish nation, and he left it in writing. He spoke about Jesus. He spoke about many of the events in the New Testament. Josephus was a Jewish historian hired by the Roman government to give a pretty good analysis of what went on in Judaism during that time. He called this the greatest of all festivals of the year, primarily because of the amount of sacrifices that were given. In this festival alone, 70 bulls were slaughtered. If you were to read the rest of the chapter, it's an amazing amount of animals that were slaughtered during this time. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, that's at the beginning here, two rams and fourteen lambs in their first year, they shall be without blemish. Their grain offering, fine flour, on and on and on it goes. The Feast of Tabernacles was a really neat feast. It was the week that dad takes his kids outside and camps for a week. They would go outside and build these little lean-tos, booths. They would get palm branches, willow branches, and, and put them on the roof. And you could have uh, branches of wood, but they had to be wide enough, said the law, that you could look up and see the stars in the sky so that you knew you were outside. You couldn't be protected from the rain. If it rained that month, you're out in the rain. They would build these on top of the house tops, the roof, the flat roofs. They would build them out in the streets, out in the squares in Jerusalem, sometimes even in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Everywhere you'd go, you'd see these booths. If you ever make it to Israel in the fall for this festival, you'll see them everywhere, just like in ancient times. And the idea is that the father takes his kids outside and they live in these things for a week. When they come home, they sleep in the booth. And one of those nights... Little Johnny, well, little Shlomo, 
is going to say, Daddy, what are we doing out here? Why have we spent all week outside in this booth looking up at the stars out in the cold with our blanket? Son, that is to remind us that for 40 years our forefathers trekked through the desert. They were nomads. They lived in tents. They lived in lean-tos. They had no permanent dwelling place, no permanent city, and yet God took care of them for 40 years. So for a whole week, they would live it out, and they would be mindful of what their forefathers went through. They would live in booths, and they would have sacrifices, and they would have offerings. And uh, the different days of the festival are given. Let's skip on down to verse 35. On the eighth day... You shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. Altogether, this Feast of Tabernacles lasted eight days. You have a holy convocation the first day, sacrifices every day, and then you'd have another major meeting on the last day. Do no work, no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, and the grain offerings and their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance. Let me describe to you what went on in the temple later on. New Testament times now, the time of Jesus, because he attended this feast. Every day, the priest would do an unusual thing. He would take a golden pitcher, and he would walk from the temple down to the pool of Siloam, which is a pretty good walk. It's an easy walk down. It's a pretty tough walk back up. The pool of Siloam was that huge reservoir of water where water was taken from the Gihon Spring in Jerusalem, piped through Hezekiah's tunnel, and dumped inside the city so that people could get their water for daily needs. The priest would walk down from the temple to the pool of Siloam, take a pitcher of water, and have a procession all the way back up to the temple. He'd be followed by throngs of people who had palm branches, willow branches in their hand. They'd be waving them, and they would be singing Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. Great time of worship. When he got to the altar, he would take water that was in that pitcher, and he would pour it at the base of the altar. And as he poured the water at the base of the altar, all of the people in great anthem would sing that uh, scripture from Isaiah chapter 12 that says, With joy you shall draw forth water from the wells of redemption or salvation. I think that's Isaiah 12, 3. They'd all sing that together. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. He poured the water. Now what was that symbolizing? It symbolized that water came from the rock in the wilderness. There they are out in the desert for 40 years and God brought water from a rock twice, once when Moses beat on it, you remember. The other time, God just brought it forth miraculously. So they would rejoice that God can preserve his people through even times where there's no provision. On the eighth day of the feast, which was the greatest day, it was a sacred assembly. They'd have a meeting around the temple courts. The people would march around the altar seven times. Why seven times? It was reminiscent of Jericho when they'd march around the land seven times, around Jericho, and the walls fell down. So they'd march around seven times. Then they'd follow the priest down. He'd get the pitcher of water, walk back up. They'd sing the Hallel Psalms. They'd do the palm branch deal. Then he'd pour the water. And as they poured the water, and everybody shouted, You will with joy draw waters from the wells of salvation. 
It is recorded that Jesus, in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, called the great day of the feast, no doubt, just as this was going on, and people were talking about water refreshing them from the well of salvation, John 7 records that Jesus stood up in the temple and cried out these words, If anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You see how picturesque that is when you understand what was going on in the temple in the Feast of Tabernacles? He didn't just decide, oh yeah, I'm going to say that living water thing. It was at a very appropriate time. The symbolism was right before them. God drew water and refreshed our forefathers, the wells of salvation. If anyone is thirsty, and he cried out, the scripture says he vociferated loudly so that people heard it. Let him come unto me and drink. You want refreshment? I'm your refreshment. Come unto me and drink. Out of your innermost being will gush torrents of living water. Awesome. Now in chapter 30, there's laws concerning vows, and let me just go through it because... I don't want to spend much time on it. God never said you have to make a vow. Yet people had a problem with telling the truth. <laughs> and so, all sorts of ways to swear came in to be vogue. I swear by the temple. I swear by all that is high and holy. I swear by my mother's honor. The Jews, by the time of Jesus, developed two types of oaths, non-binding oaths and binding oaths. You could have an oath, but if you didn't say the right words, well, we won't hold you to it. But if you say this, well, you've got to do it. And Jesus nailed them for it. In Matthew chapter 23, he said, look at you guys, you're such hypocrites. You say if, if a person will make a vow and, and they will swear, I swear by the temple that it's a non-binding oath, but he who says, I swear by the gold in the temple, that you'll hold him to it. Or if somebody says, I swear by the altar, doesn't mean anything. But if you say, I swear by, you know, the sacrifice that is on the altar, that's a binding oath. And it was a ridiculous twisting of the scriptures. And it was, it was just a nonsense. That's why Jesus said, let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. Say yes and say no. Instead of, well, I promise... I cross my heart, I double cross my heart, I cross my heart, hope to die. Just be a person of your word, integrity. However, there were vows, and the vows worked like this. If you were a single woman and you lived at home and you said a vow and your dad didn't hear it, you were responsible for keeping your vow. Now, you didn't have to make it, but if you made the vow, you had to keep it. However, if your dad heard you make the vow and he didn't intervene and say, she didn't know what she's talking about, she's a kid then your dad is responsible for the vow that the daughter makes. Same way if you're married and you make a vow. Verse 8 or verse 6. But if indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she is bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response on her the day he hears it, then her vow shall stand and her agreements by which she is bound herself shall stand. So, if your wife goes to the store, she says, I promise I'm going to buy that. And I'll pay you before sunset. And I want to buy that and that and that and that. 
the husband could come in and say, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's not going to buy that. I'm not going to let her buy that. I've just usurped her decision. But if he doesn't do anything about the vow, then he is responsible to pay for the vow. And so it's a law concerning vows when they get into the land. Uh, widows are talked about in verse 9. And uh, those who are um, single again uh, by widowhood. Uh, verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. In chapter 31, boy, we're scooting through it, isn't it great? There's vengeance on the Midianites. And actually, a couple weeks ago, we covered a lot of this. We had you turn to it. This is like one of the last public acts of Moses recorded in the Bible. God speaks to him and says, we have a problem here. The Midianites, which caused the children of Israel uh, to stumble by Balak hiring Balaam to curse the children of Israel, and that didn't work, so he took the women of Moab and had them cause, uh, have sexual relations with the Israelites. All of these women are still alive. And, and the people are rejoicing in Midian because of the fact that Israel has sinned. And so a draft is underway. An army is conscripted. A thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel, or 12,000 army men, this is the draft, shall get together and have a strategic attack on the Midianites and shall kill them and those prostitutes as well with them. Uh, down in verse 7, they warred against the Midianites just as the Lord commanded Moses and they killed all the males and they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed, namely Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian, Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. Now here was the guy that looked over the children of Israel and said, oh, I want to die the death of the righteous. Well, he didn't. He was slaughtered in this directive by God and then through Moses. And um, verses 12 through 16 tell of the reason that God cursed the children of Israel in that episode, specifically verse 16. Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And now therefore kill every male among the little ones, kill every woman who has known a man intimately, those who have taken part uh, in this idolatry. Okay, then uh, verse 25 to the end. I just take for granted that you've read this and I'm summing it up for you. The plunder is given. They would come back from war and they had all of this plunder for two reasons. Number one, for the tabernacle. And number two, for the rest of the children of Israel to share in the plunder. Now the portion that didn't go to the tabernacle went to the rest of Israel. And they were to divide up that portion between the people as a whole as well as the 12,000 fighting men, which would mean the 12,000 fighting men got more of a share of the booty than the general population, which makes sense. They fought in the war. Then a portion of that was tithed to the tabernacle uh, for the Levites and for the upkeep of the tabernacle. And that ends chapter 31. So look at that. We've covered four chapters tonight. That might be a record uh, in our recent study through the Bible. We'll begin next time with chapter 32 and maybe... Uh, finish the book but we'll come close to it a couple more weeks and we'll be in the gospel of John let's pray
Father, we think of all those festivals that had meaning in the New Testament, especially of that Feast of Passover that we're celebrating this time of the year. And how as Christians we have the greatest joy during the time of Passover because Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So that there are no more sacrifices for sin. There doesn't need to be one. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Father, we also think of that Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus made that wonderful promise that if anyone is thirsty, they could come to him and drink. Find satisfaction, find purpose, find meaning in life. And anyone who's ever made a profession of faith and called upon your name and turned in repentance to you, you've never let down. You've satisfied, you've fulfilled. Lord, I pray that tonight, if people have come who don't know Jesus Christ, that this would be their night of turning. We look at all of these Old Testament things and they find their fulfillment in the New Testament. They find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's so wonderful to know, Lord, that you don't require these rituals, these sacrifices, these libations, grain offerings, sin offerings. It's all finished. But you do require that a person is born again. That a person believes in you with all of their life, all of their heart. Lord, I would pray for anyone tonight who is still bound in the fetters of legalism. Trying to do things to be righteous before you or they're counting up their own deeds and their own qualifications, their own degrees, the amount of money that they give to good causes, and they, they, they try to hold that up and say, this makes me right before God. Lord, show them by your Spirit the emptiness, the vanity of trying to approach you that way. Convince them of the joy of a Savior coming and taking away sin once and for all, And we believe, Lord, that tonight some who are here have an appointment with you. That you're calling them by name. We would pray, Lord, that during this time you would by your Spirit touch those hearts whom you are calling to yourself tonight, whom you have chosen. That they might respond in faith and turn to the Lamb of God, Yeshua. Jesus, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the world. In this time of prayer, as you're meditating on your own life, maybe you would admit, I'm without Christ. I've never made a personal response to his gift on Calvary. I've never given my life or surrendered my life to him. I've never made a conscious decision to repent of my sins and turn to him. Maybe you would admit church has just been an event, a duty that you keep, but you don't have a personal, vital, living relationship with God. God invites you tonight to have peace and forgiveness through the blood of His Son, that once and for all sacrifice. If you're here tonight and you'd like to make that 
decision to follow Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins and to turn to Him, I'd like you to raise your hand. And I'll pray for you as we close this service. Just raise it up once and I'll acknowledge you and we'll pray. Raise it up high so I can see it. If you're not sure that you're right with God tonight, if you're not sure that if you were to die, you'd be in heaven, it's time to admit and acknowledge that you need Jesus. If you'd like to receive Him tonight, just raise your hand. Say, Skip, pray for me. Here's my hand. I'm reaching out to Jesus like a man who's drowning. Pray for me as you close your service. Anybody at all? Then I infer that everybody here knows that if they were to die, they'd be in heaven. God bless you toward the back and you. I see your hand. Anybody else? It's the time now to come clean before God. You over here too, in the middle and over here on the side. Anybody else? If God is nudging your heart, surrender to Him. God bless you. Father, for these we pray as a congregation. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has had an appointment with these all along, and they have kept that appointment by your grace. Lord, we pray that as you invade their lives, that you'd fill them with a sense of joy as they turn their lives to you tonight. You that are raising your hand to receive Christ, receive him right now by asking him to be your Savior. 